Hello, welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 29th, 2021, the live at 100 Days edition. This is a special live Gab Fest sponsored by Lord Jones. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in my apartment in Washington, D.C. Joining me from his home in Manhattan, New York City, John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. And from her home, but a room I'm not sure I recognize in her home, Emily Bazelon of Yale University Law School. She's in every week. And what are you talking the New York about? Times Magazine. It's a study in my attic. It's just like a slightly different vantage it's a di- point. Huh. Well, it's a different vantage point. It's literally not daylight. Confuse me. <gasps> okay. That's the only. <laughs> On today's show, President Biden is going to sum up his first 100 days tonight, but we are going to beat him to it. We will be joined by Jamel Bowie of the New York Times for the first two topics. The first topic we're going to consider. Biden's accomplishments, policy accomplishments, his plans. And then we're going to talk about the politics of the first 100 days. And the second topic, has anything fundamentally shifted? Has any of the poisonous partisanship leached out of the system? And then for our third topic, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court taking up a monumental gun rights case. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. You, dear watchers and listeners who are live watching us, you can put questions in your chat. We uh, will Use them for the Slate Plus segment later on. So please put questions that can be about anything. Before we get started, speaking of the Supreme Court, we have a tempest in a teapot. Emily, I don't know if you saw it. Chief Justice Roberts officially requested that the D.C. police remove the Vandy plates from former Justice Breyer's car. In a statement, a court spokesperson said, I have it here. While Justice Breyer served on the court, Chief Justice Roberts allowed Breyer to use the SCOTUS-1 plate out of collegiality and respect for his age. Now that the justice has retired, the license plate should be where it belongs by custom on the chief justice's car. Breyer did not comment on this, but but uh, he had said in a 1999 interview that he won that plate off then Chief Justice Rehnquist in a blackjack game. But none of this actually happened. Why, Emily? You know what this story is making me think about is I actually have a DC vanity plate somewhere in my house. And if I'd known you were going to go in this direction, I would have brought along for a little show and tell. Why? Because Chief Justice, I mean, because Justice Breyer is still on the court. That is why. (laughs) Yeah, you almost gave him a promotion. I know. Uh, I know. He's not the Chief Justice, but he is still a justice. I decided to have dinner while David was telling that story. But I, um, Emily, why do you have vanity plates? Because my grandfather was a judge in D.C., so he had that <laughs> place. Had, what did it say? What was it? It just says, I think it's 45. I really am tempted to go get it because I know where it is, but I'm not going to. Wait, 45 isn't a Vandy plate. Like, judge would be well, a Vandy like, plate. No, no, but if you, but in D.C., right, if you just have a couple numbers, I think that tells the cops that, that you're working yes. federal government. Yes. My brother-in-law had, literally, I swear to God, had 44. Whoa. Do you still have it? No, 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 no. Many, 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 many years ago. But I remember when I was growing up, I thought, oh, wow, 44 on a car. That's that's crazy. How do you get one of those? Mm-hmm. But but David, when you said vanity plate, I thought we both thought the same things, which is that some like here come to judge all spelled out really. Yeah. Quick, you know, yeah. yeah. But I yeah. think it's a little subtler, exactly. actually, David. You don't want to like have everyone know just the insiders. You know what? We are wasting a lot of time on this. And that is a bad idea. OK. <laughs> President Biden is going to address a joint session of Congress tonight on the 100th day. I think it's the 100th day of his presidency. It has been 
a hugely consequential 100 days and also mercifully boring in some ways. So to talk about it both from a policy and then a political perspective, we are joined by Jamel Bowie, the brilliant New York Times columnist, and Jamel, the father of a new baby girl, your second child, Mazel Thank Tov. Thank you. This is why I look so harried right now. No, actually, you look cheery. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> I feel like I'm going insane. <laughs> then you must be doing it right. <laughs> You're doing it correctly, exactly. So, Jamel, let's start with you. There are two big things to note, I think, about the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. The first is the pretty ambitious, the extremely ambitious policy that's underway, notably the the ARP that passed, but now an infrastructure plan and a parents or a care bill, $4 trillion of new spending that's proposed, ambitious climate goals, a full withdrawal from Afghanistan, a massive vaccine campaign, just to start on the list of the actual sort of policies. And then the second thing to note is the dreariness of it. It has just been really mercifully, to use that word again, mercifully quiet. Yeah, no, um, we're still getting acclimated to what a relatively normal presidency feels like. Trump having been so, you know, bombastic, always always tweeting and, and making news by virtue of its rhetoric. But to a certain extent, right, that having Obama, the first African-American president, also was sort of this highly visible event that you really couldn't just like turn off. Like you, you always noticed that the president was an African-American, was a black guy. And so Biden being an older white man, frankly, I think by its nature, turns down the temperature on national politics and the administration very much taking a deliberate strategy of only not really trying to make news um, when it's not policy related, trying to keep Biden uh, out of the spotlight as much as possible also contributes to all of this, not engaging right with every single controversy that comes up um, in the news cycle. All of this, I think, contributes to a uh, a sense not just of normalcy, but of, of things being boring. And I think that in turn feeds into his pretty ambitious policy agenda. You really only hear from Biden these days when he is proposing uh, some new big package of spending. I'm not sure the White House should be so comfortable, you know, calling for a trillion dollars in new spending on, you know, Affordable Care Act subsidies and and uh, child care if Biden were like constantly in people's face making news. Uh, but when he's not, you can kind of just show up and say, this is what I want to do. This is what I think the country needs. And I think it just reads differently. Again, this can't be disentangled from the fact that he's an old white guy. So, John, I can never remember if you love or hate 100-day markers. I just can't. I know you have a strong view. But, but whatever, whichever it is, what do you make of Biden's 100 days? You know, as Jamal was talking, it feels like Biden could be in a in an oil painting, like before the age of photography, a president who kind of is, you know, could be some just kind of throw him in there at some point in the 18th century. Um, briefly, my I mean, as the world's greatest bore on how to measure presidents and whether we do it right or wrong, it seems to me that a measurement that comes along simply because it's a round number is probably kind of phony. I mean, I think David Axelrod is right when he talked about it being a Hallmark holiday, even FDR, when he came up with the 100 days. 100 days is from the first length of the emergency session of the 1933 Congress. So it's not even about the president. And FDR, when he named it, said, you know what, 100 days is too soon. We should wait. We want to wait to see it get my administration in place to see if we can do any of these things. 
But the reason he had to do that is it was 76 pieces of legislation when he first came into office. Biden, and this is what's what's interesting and goes to Jamel's point, Biden's passed 11. Individual pieces of legislation doesn't matter. It's what legislation you passed. He's had 42 executive orders. That's more than any president since Truman. And he's undone more of his previous predecessor's executive orders than all of the last three presidents combined. His first uh, piece of legislation, his biggest piece of legislation was on a party line vote. And yet 58% of the people in our last poll said that he was in fact trying to be bipartisan. So he's being aggressive in pursuit of his goals, but he's kind of not being a jerk about it. And so people haven't seen him as a particularly partisan president. Obviously the Republicans do, but that's because we live in an entirely new era of looking at presidents. And my final last point is when you look at his approval rating, there is the largest split between what Democrats think about the president and Republicans think. Approval rating is basically now depends on what jersey you wear almost entirely, rather, or not entirely, but a lot, rather than whether people have an independent view about what you're doing. So, Emily, there's the $1.9 trillion that already went in the first uh, rescue package, and now there's $4 trillion more that the Democrats are proposing or that Biden is proposing, half of it in a Jobs Act, and Infrastructure Act, and half of it in this sort of uh, Families Act that, that is focused on, on child care and education and health care. Is it your sense like, wow, this is hugely ambitious or actually he's not doing a lot of stuff that he should be doing? I mean, I think it is hugely ambitious, but I think we've been reduced to just governing by spending money. So, you know, it's important to note that he didn't um, come through with raising the cap on refugees, at least not yet, in a way that he had promised. You know, I think immigration policy remains really hard, maybe especially for Democrats. I don't feel like it's been super coherent. Um, and it's also just really challenging to figure out what to do. What I have been just appreciating about the last hundred days, and I mean, I think it's kind of a dumb marker and all the counting for the reason John says, like, who cares how many of things? What matters is what they are. But I love how boring it is. I've gotten to go back to my like pre-Trump news consumption of like kind of, you know, I mean, I'm on, I have to do this show, so I can't totally ignore things. And somehow I manage to fake it every week. But mostly I don't read political news. Like I don't ever listen or watch it. I don't really care. And being able to just tune it out is such a relief. Do you think, Emily, that this is a feature or a bug? Like, obviously, it is a blessed relief after Trump, who is just like, ever present, omnipresent, unpleasantly present all the time. And so, of course, it feels nice not to have a president who's present. But at some point, and Emily, maybe you take this first, but then Jamal and John, I'm interested. At some point, does the president have to get out and be more charismatic, more public, more of a seller? Or or really, it doesn't, we can, we can have the, the uh, John Tyler model of president that we once had. I mean, I don't think he needs to do anything differently, like right now. I mean, something could change. But, you know, if we think of the presidency as kind of pinging back and forth between different types, or maybe sometimes pinging in a different direction, right? We had this cerebral, intellectual president in Barack Obama. Then we had someone hugely intemperate who craved attention all the time and Donald Trump. And now we have this kind of sleepy guy, like, the fact that he has a 53% approval rating, given our, the, all the partisan polarization, shows that at least right now, like, the kind of quiet um, steering of the ship seems okay. Do you, Jamel, do you think that 
Biden is going to have to can, can can stick with this strategy, this this way of being. You know, I think he can because the the idea that a president has to go out and barnstorm. Um, I think that's a pretty it's a pretty it's a modern invention, but there's also there's different styles of presidential leadership and uh, a style of presidential leadership in which the president leans in to the agenda setting aspects of the job, giving a, a single speech announcing a big program, speaking mostly about policy packages, deferring public negotiation to Congress, kind of standing back is a legitimate way of doing the job. And in a partisan environment, in a political environment where attention can be both positive and that it, you know, makes your supporters, makes your partisans very excited, but also energizes the other side, I think there's something to say for a strategy that attempts to keep him out of the picture, to basically make it harder for his opposition to mobilize themselves off the basis of his constant presence. George Edwards, the political scientist, and also Brendan Nyan taught me this years ago that that actually on many, many, many things, the more a president talks about it, the, the worse it is for the thing they're trying to sell. Once you associate a president in a partisan environment, when you associate a president with a policy, suddenly people now know why they don't like it, because it's associated with that person. Now, there is a, there's another idea, which is backed by no one, I don't think, and I'm just winging it here. But if we're in a super partisan environment, the Republicans have found, because 70% of the Republicans in the last CBS poll believe Donald Trump legitimately won the election. We are in an environment where the most ideological people who vote in off-year elections are able to believe a totally made-up reality. And therefore, what a president does or doesn't do doesn't matter. They're going to be fully energized based on a largely made-up reality. So if that's the world you're fighting in, whether you're quiet or loud doesn't change that world. So I don't know. That's a way of saying I'm not sure which way is the right way to go, although my instinct would be to be quiet, especially in the post-Trump years, is the right way to go. Emily, do you get the sense that that the the other branch of government here, the, the courts that you follow so closely, are going to kneecap what Biden is doing? Do you think that, that, that it's clear like that, that con- so Congress can act on these limited set of things? Congress is not going to pass an immigration bill. Congress is not going to pass a huge policing reform bill because Democrats are just not going to be able to get anything like that passed a Republican filibuster. So they can only get these limited spending bills passed. So but we do have the, co- the president doing lots of things with executive actions. Can he expect the courts, which have become increasingly conservative in recent years to just bat that stuff away? Not the current bills, I don't think. I think the danger would be if he, if the Democrats passed, you know, national health care, something that uh, seemed to be a different kind of social welfare addition to the existing, right? So like Medicare would have been something that this court might have been skeptical of, right? The New Deal, when you go back to those conservative justices in the 30s who almost blocked FDR. I guess I meant more, not the bills. I meant things like DACA. Like things that Biden wants to do exec- with executive action, will the courts allow him to do? I mean, DACA, his actions on DACA are already being challenged in the courts. So, yes, I think there will be some questions about executive orders for sure. What do you think about um, things he's doing within the agencies? So, for example, the you know, looking into the Minneapolis Police Department, that was not obviously would have been done under Trump, Emily. Yeah, I mean, this is a return to using the Justice Department's powers of investigation to 
conceivably enter into new consent decrees with cities. And, you know, we've had this since the 90s that you had a troubled police department. There's a ton of investigation and reporting that gets done by the Justice Department. And then they try to hammer out an agreement and a consent decree is the kind with the most teeth. And then you have federal monitoring. So, yes, that is a return to the pre-Trump era of federal involvement in policing. And it has a mixed record, but in a lot of cities, I think um, people feel like it's been useful in terms of things like limiting the use of force and um, changing or at least diminishing racially discriminatory policing. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's turn to sort of the political questions because we're dancing around them. You guys have all touched on the question of uh, Biden's approval rating. And so, Jamel, Biden has a 53% approval rating in recent polls, a shockingly low 53% approval rating, or an astonishing 53% approval rating. What... Where are we with that? I mean, I, I think I'll just echo John here. I think we're sort of in a new, a new realm when it comes to presidential approval. That it's sort of completely disconnected from actual job performance. I mean, this happened in 2017, but I think it's happened again now. Partisan estimations of how the economy is doing it basically reverse. Right, Republicans now think that the economy is horrible, and Democrats think it's getting better. And in 2017, it was Democrats like the economy is going to hell, and Republicans are like things are looking up again. And when approval is so tied to just partisan identity, I mean, I look at that number, and what I see basically is that Biden is holding on to everyone he voted for, which is maybe the best he can ask for in terms of approval. I can't I can't really imagine the situation in which he would be able to dislodge a significant number of Republicans to sort of change what his approval looks like. Emily, like what what do you think explains the real Republican inability to have any sort of counter policy, any measure besides Dr. Seuss lies about Kamala Harris's book being foisted on migrant kids? Like is it they're devoid of ideas or they have ideas, their ideas are unpopular? Or is it that is it that this is just they they just don't it's just not worth having a fight over issues because that's not really where politics is played these days? Well, they do all still agree that that we shouldn't raise taxes. Right. So that's an idea. I mean, it's sort of a in the negative, but it's still unifying for the party, I think. And then I think you're having a real division between to oversimplify maybe, populism and a more traditional 
set of Republican concerns, right? So you see these proposed bills that would give more money to families um, with kids, right? But then you see different versions of them. So that there's, you know, there's Romney's, there's Hawley's, there's others. So they don't seem to have coalesced in a faction exactly. Um, But on the other hand, they're proposing things that seem um, untraditional for Republicans. So I, I feel like there's just some intellectual confusion going on, or just the party hasn't settled into its post-Trump identity. It's going to be hard to cohere as long as he's on the scene. And so then you have culture war, because culture war plays really well, at least on television. It seems like pretty... It's it's sort of a sad, um, pale version of policy, but it seems like a pretty good political tactic. Well, you know, I wonder if there's a, if there's a bit of a problem here, which is that is that in order to raise money, in order to have it get attention, you have to participate in, I've talked about it before, we'll do it again, the market that was created by Donald Trump, which is the market of Dr. Zeus, which is the market of of banning meat. That's the entry price into then perhaps trying to talk about policy. But if you pay that entry price, nobody's going to be listening to policy because the outrage is always more interesting than a debate over you know the better way to fashion the child tax credit. By the way, one obscure thing that Biden will talk about community college tonight, which is about 46 percent of people who go to college, go to community colleges. President Obama suggested free community college in 2015. He went to Tennessee to do it, and he did it and took on the airplane with him two senators from Tennessee, both of them Republicans, who backed the idea. I mean, that seems like another century ago where you would do that. I don't think the two sitting senators, Republicans from Tennessee, would do that now. They're two different senators. Um, It's just one other tiny little way in which we think about how very, very different these individual policies are and policymaking is now. The the way to get attention as a Republican politician these days is to show up on Fox. It's to show up on conservative talk radio. It's to kind of play that game. And not only does that select for politicians who are good at that, but it kind of just degrades the entire party's ability to make policy, to argue for particular policy positions when in the out party. And so I think what we're seeing now is basically a a cycle that began 10 years ago with Obama continuing on and kind of just getting worse with a, a a new class of Republican politicians who have basically absorbed all of the lessons of the previous 10 years of Donald Trump, of the Tea Party, of all of that, and have calibrated themselves to essentially just, you know, be media personalities, influencers, basically. Do you guys think that the... So there is this theory, I think, that a, a lot of Democrats are clinging to right now, which is do popular stuff do it competently, and then you will succeed. And I think the Republican theory is sort of what Jamel is talking about, which is be an influencer, be a loud, abrasive, shocking personality, and that will carry you forward. Do do we know which of these theories is going to carry the day? I mean, because Trump carried the day in 2016 and and for four years, and now Biden has carried the day now. But like in the long run, does is one of those theories stronger than the other? I worry that the second theory is now stronger. Well, I feel like we don't know the answer because Republicans have such a structural advantage across the country, especially for the Senate and the House, but increasingly also for the Electoral College, see the latest census results. And so it's like not a fair race, right? I mean, you could argue, in fact, that the fact the reason they have 
gone in this culture war direction is there is less of a burden on them to sell actual policy and to run on those accomplishments. So it depends what you mean by popular. If you mean popular, popular, what'll be interesting is, is depending on what happens between now and 2022, so far, Joe Biden has done incredibly popular things. So that means it's the right route. It's popular. But popular doesn't mean what it used to. It used to mean if you did popular things, you would have political power. If in the off-year elections, overall popularity doesn't matter, but enthusiasm in your base matters, then it may be sufficient as for Republicans only need to pick up five seats in the House. Their only rallying cry may need to be, we no longer have the House, let's get it back. And in that case, you could have something different in 2022 than you had after Obamacare was passed and after Bill Clinton took his pounding in 1994, which is you had Republicans take control after unpopular things were passed. With Biden, you could imagine popular things having been passed and yet nevertheless Republicans gaining control, which would be a kind of uh, a mixed answer to your question, David. There seems to be this debate raging. Tom Edsel wrote about this in The Times about how Democrats should be messaging in 2022 and 2024 around issues of race and class and whether the party will do better if it emphasizes race in policies it's pursuing and sort of the racial racial injustice, particularly against black Americans, that's inbuilt in so many systems and institutions and policies in American life, or emphasizing class and and sort of policies that will help large groups of people based on their economic position in the country, or some melding of both. Is this an important debate? Is it a is it a real debate? Is this is it or is this just like phony and made up because it's always going to be you're always going to talk about both of those things? I I think it's a real debate. You know, I mean, to the extent that these discussions influence what, you know, Democratic strategists and politicians do, how they how they, you know, uh, pursue their interests, they matter. I mean, after the 2020 election, there is an immediate drive among some Democrats to blame the outcome um, or the less than satisfactory outcome on slogans like defund the police. And as long as that dynamic is around, basically looking for some messaging explanation for uh, defeat or lackluster performance, then these kind of conversations are are going to matter. What sort of my wish about these conversations is twofold. The first is that I really think it's always worth having a bit of historical perspective here, and at least when people are making their case, to look for or remember when we had similar arguments and see how those played out. So right now, this to me is very reminiscent of you know arguments in the 90s among Democrats about how to move forward um, in kind of a, an era of conservative hegemony. And some of the suggestions from then sort of downplaying the party's connection to at least you know liberalism, liberalism as it's as it's associated with African Americans, I hear echoes of that today, and I would sort of note that that didn't didn't really work out for Democrats all that well in the nineties. The other thing I, I would sort of want to see more of in these conversations is to kind of really take full account of the research, and the Edsel column I think does a really great job of this, and that it highlights very good research from the last couple of years, arguing that. It's a combination of a race-class messaging that works to kind of not just sell the policy, but diffuse potential sources of, of opposition because, and I think this is true, you know, American politics isn't some deracialized, non-racial stage that voters are getting racialized messages. And so it's the question is how you deal with that, not whether or not, not whether you can kind of get around it. 
uh, and research that says to do both race and class, I think I find very persuasive at the very least. Jamel Bowie, columnist in the New York Times and new dad for the second time. Jamel, thanks for coming. We'll talk to you soon. Go, go get some sleep or go <laughs> no problem. Thank you guys. hold that baby or something. Thanks, Jamel. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to our third topic. Emily, what is New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett? Oh, it is potentially the beginning of the end of state and local uh, gun control laws. So, you know, we've a decade ago, the Supreme Court ruled that there is an individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment and with great fanfare struck down what was essentially a total ban on handgun ownership in Washington, D.C., and then followed up with a similar ruling about um, an ordinance in Chicago. So we know that you can't totally ban people from using from having guns at home. But the um, the court's opinion in Heller, which is the first of these cases, had this huge carve out in it, almost certainly as an effort to get the fifth vote of Justice Anthony Kennedy, which said basically, notwithstanding this opinion, lots and lots of other kinds of gun control regulations can still stand. Well, Justice Kennedy is not on the court anymore, and there have been rumblings from Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch for a few years now that they think that this carve-out is basically like driving a truck right through the protection for gun ownership in the Second Amendment. This case coming out of New York is a New York regulation that makes it pretty hard to get a permit to carry a gun in a concealed manner outside your house. So New York totally bans open carry. This is just when can you have um, a handgun with you outside your home? And you have to have basically a special reason. It can't just be like, I want to protect myself. And the reality is that it's hard to get a gun permit in New York. And that's one of the reasons that gun ownership is relatively low. And there's lots of evidence that that helps prevent crimes committed with guns and also suicides committed with guns. But the Supreme Court seems quite eager to change all of that. And so if this um, New York law falls, there are a bunch of states that similarly have high standards for 
concealed carry outside the home, including California, Maryland, Delaware, I think Illinois is on that list too. So there are lots and lots of people, people's lives, big cities that would be implicated by any kind of, it doesn't even have to be super broad, this ruling that would strike down New York's law, and then you wonder about what's coming next. Um, And so I think this is a case that conservatives have been waiting for for a long time, and it's a kind of payoff for the new appointees on the court by President Trump. Emily, then, does that create or pave the, uh, clear the way for concealed carry reciprocity? That's a really good question. I mean, that is like a, a, a further leap, right? Because it's one thing to say that you have to make it easier for your own residents to carry a gun in your state. And another thing to say that if you have really like zero limitations, no training requirements, no waiting period, that that reciprocity would have to be respected in another state, that would really be eliminating any kind of gun control protections we have. So I don't want to say that this case is that case, because that's further down the line. And I think it will be interesting how broadly this opinion is written. I don't really think there's any question that the, that the conservatives are going to strike down this New York law. I think the question will be how um, much do they invite future challenges and how broadly do they um, put their reasoning. Did you know that Donald Trump is one of the people who has a concealed carry permit in New York? I did, because I read that. I mean, right. So it's not impossible to get it, obviously. He got it, he got it by basically by... I think pledging to give the police some police group some money and getting around the licensing requirements. Classic Trump. He probably didn't even give the right. money. And I asked him about this what, really? during the campaign. I think he told me that he, I think I asked him if he still carries it or something. And this is back when, uh, you could shoot someone on fifth Avenue. I think it was, no, yeah, exactly. I think that might've been the context. Anyway, anyway, and I think he said he still carries it, which what he says doesn't, align with what is the case. But uh, anyway, I think I did ask him about it. The uh, question I had about this, Emily, is concealed carry seems to be a lower bar than open carry. So that you, there are states which allow concealed carry but not open carry. Is I don't understand why those are treated so differently. I mean, I understand from a political matter that open carry is a, is silences speech and makes people feel terrified. But if you believe that that people should have a right to bear arms and that bearing arms is in self-defense and and uh, a right to protect themselves, I don't understand why why open carry isn't as as uh, welcome. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a strange distinction. You sort of wonder why it's there at all. I mean, sometimes the distinction is also about long guns versus short guns. And that makes a little more sense since long guns are traditionally used for hunting. And I do think you're right that there's a connection between open carry and potentially suppressing protest and speech, because once people have guns, other people aren't necessarily so comfortable showing up. Concealed carry is has been kind of favored as the way that you protect yourself, right? If someone doesn't know you have a gun. Well, although, you know, you can make the argument for open carry, too. If someone does know you have a gun, then they're going to be even less likely to mess with you. So I feel like it's sort of a relic, and I'm never exactly sure why it really matters. Maybe that reveals my ignorance about how guns are actually used. Emily, you you talked about some of the gun restrictions that might tumble if this, if the Corlett case uh, is won by the conservatives here. Um, One thing I was wondering about is gun registration and licensing. Do those 
rules occupy the same or they do they live in the same place as these gun carrying rules because i could i can imagine that you could have laws about focusing on training and safety and licensing and those wouldn't necessarily implicate your right to bear arms in the same way that a law about basically barring concealed carry does well one difference is between a total ban and or an effective total ban right i mean one of the things that the challengers are going to argue is that it's almost impossible unless you're a cop or an ex-security guard to get a permit especially in new york city and that the the language they use is they want ordinary law-abiding citizens to be able to get permits and then you're asking a further question well can you have permitting requirements that involve things like training or waiting periods is that going to be still permitted. And the question will be whether the Supreme Court thinks that that too infringes on your Second Amendment right. Like how much can the state make you do? How many hoops can they make you jump through in order to get it? And I mean, it does seem to me like those are questions that are different in kind. And so you could imagine a regime that says like you can have the states can can still um, impose those kinds of requirements as long as if you fulfill all of them, you get your license at the end. Before we leave this topic, I, I just want, or before we leave the court, I just want to talk about one other case, which just really made me sick this week, which is, I'm sure you saw this, Emily, the Supreme Court allowed a life without parole sentence to stand for a 15-year-old who killed his grandparent. And and wait, you say, didn't the Supreme Court get rid of life without parole? That's what I, for, for juveniles, which is what I thought. But I guess they'd only gotten rid of mandatory life without parole sentences. And you can still, if you were a judge and you, and you, even sort of slightly take into account the youth of the the offender, uh, if you consider it, you can still consider it and then give them life without parole. And it, I don't, I cannot think of something which is more like on its face inhumane than to decide that a 15-year-old can never, ever leave prison for the rest of their life. I mean, if that is not inhumanity, I don't know what inhumanity is. It's insane that we could have that as a, as something. And the, and it's also, it is, ironic beyond ironic that Brett Kavanaugh, whose own teenage activities were highly called into question during his confirmation, wants to punish people for life with what what they did at 15. It's just it's just kind of sickening. Right. And I mean, I think the idea that with all of the science about the adolescent brain and how much less teenagers have um, on average of impulse control and executive function, this seems to fly in the face of all of that. The dissent by Sonia Sotomayor accused the majority opinion of distorting the precedents here, um, she said, beyond recognition. And what happened was that in the earlier decisions by Justice Kennedy, the court outlawed mandatory life for without parole for juveniles, but there was also this idea that a judge would have to find that the defendant was one of those rare children whose crimes reflect irreparable corruption. And now they don't have to find that anymore. There just has to be some um, something in the record that they considered the child's youth, and that's enough. And that just leaves a huge amount of discretion to, to judges and to state legislatures. I mean, also, the, again, the notion that a 15-year-old, that you could find irreparable corruption in a 15-year-old is demonic. That's a demonic idea. It is. It is. We should be absolutely ashamed. Anyway. Let us go to cocktail chatter. I'm having a beer. Uh, I don't know if you're having a cocktail, John. What If you were having a cocktail right now, what would you be chattering to us about? Um, my cocktail chatter is um, 
two things. One uh, is log rolling, which is that uh, I have a piece on 16 Minutes on Sunday about Michael Lewis's new book, which is great. Uh, it's about the pandemic. Um, the piece is great or the book is great or both? Both. <laughs> both. Um, but it's because it's... Uh, I try. I was trying to leave that vague. Um, uh, it's just it's another way of thinking about the response to the pandemic that's um, that's surprising and interesting and, and well told. Um, I'll leave it there. Then my other is that when I didn't put a comma in um, a recent tweet, uh, we had we all had some mirth about the the mistake in the tweet, which is not as interesting as something that a Twitter user sent me. The Twitter user's handle is getting some. Anyway. It was um, Gertrude Stein on the question of commas. It, she goes on at some length, but I will just read you her last piece about commas, which is both her weighing in against them and also proof of why they're useful. As I say, commas are servile and they have no life of their own, and their use is not a use. It is a way of replacing one's own interest, and I do decidedly like to like my own interest, my own interest in what I'm doing. A comma, by helping you along, holding your coat for you, and putting on your shoes, keeps you from living your life as actively as you should lead it. And to me, for many years, and I still do feel this way about it, only now do I not pay as much attention to them. The use of them was positively degrading. To the extent that that made any sense, it's because I put commas in where there probably should be commas. <laughs> Emily, what is your comma chatter? No, that's not where the comma goes. Emily, comma, <laughs> where's, what is your chatter? Question mark. My chatter is less fun. It's about this story in the LA Times by Rosanna Chia about this just enormous dump site of DDT that is off the coast of Los Angeles. It's such a huge dump site of these barrels of DDT that the scientists haven't even mapped it yet. It just like goes on and on and on. And it's really just, there are all these photos of this pollution bubbling 3000 feet under the sea, as this story says. And I sometimes just get obsessed with these stories. I don't know if you guys remember this monologue that Andy McDowell did in Sex, Lies, and Videotape about where all the garbage was going to go, but it was, like, really a problem for me, that monologue. It sort of got into my head like a little earworm, and I worry about where all the garbage is going to go, but I don't want to find out. The answer is that this incredibly toxic chemical is, like, sitting right off the coast of California in the ocean, and there are these questions about whether it's connected to higher cancer rates for dolphins and sea otters and various other creatures. And it just, it's just so alarming that our Earth can be marred in this way. Um, sex, lies, and videotape in a movie which really does not make use of a comma. I think there are no commas in that. And no capital letters, right? Did you ever see Wally? Wally's yeah. about what happens when all the, there's all the trash. Yeah. Yeah. I basically had to stop watching it again because I just find this topic But it's hard. kind of, I actually, I mean, this, this is not a popular opinion. I'm sure it's totally wrong. I do wonder and yet, yet barrel forth, young man. I do wonder if you if you found yourself in a position where you've made enormous amounts of a toxic chemical, like that's a mistake, but you've done it. You've made it. Like, is the best solution like take it as far from people as you can? Maybe not the coast this of California, isn't that but far. but like take it. You take it to Christmas no, but this Island. Is where we have that mountain it, in where is it? Dump, Nevada. Nevada. That's yeah, but like, they haven't managed to do that. To, well, no, to put it's the like very deep radioactive waste, isn't it? No, the oh. people won't approve it. It has never been approved. 
the people in Nevada have all have blocked it and the Nevada senators and I somehow failed to realize that. <laughs> so it's like I maybe you just thought that all our nuclear waste was buried far away. And now that's not true. This is really I'm really going to have nightmares about this. Um, <clears throat> my chatter is a magnificent story in Emily's very own New York Times magazine uh, by Stephen Johnson called How Humanity Gave Itself an Extra Life. And it's about the interesting fact that lifespan doubled in the world from 40 years to 80 years over the past century. This is a, it's a really great account because, of course, it's familiar things. So it's things like vaccination, smallpox vaccination, oral rehydration therapy, antibiotics, water treatment. But it's also about how these things, which we think of as you think of the invention of penicillin. Penicillin is invented and then it, penicillin is not really invented. It's kind of discovered, but it takes like enormous amount of intellectual energy and a whole public health community, a ton of research and a ton of legwork to actually imp- to get it being used. So it takes 15 years from the discovery of penicillin until it's actually used. Or vaccination is not enough. It's like the st- particular strategies around ring vaccination that totally shut down smallpox. And I mean, the overall point is that we've extended life from 40 years to 80 years, not because we've made people live to be 150. It's because public health is good. It's like the way you extend life is not to extend any one individual life. It's to extend, it's to like have those people whose life would have been cut off at age five or age 40 uh, now get to live to age 70 or 80 or 90. And that's a positive good. And it's really not about, we shouldn't, we really shouldn't spend our energy focusing on preserving any one individual life to live, to go infinitely it's it's to preserve lots of lives so that lots of us get to live somewhat longer that's the way to do it anyway great story from stephen johnson and it's i think also going to be a four-part pbs series and we have been collecting your listener chatters dear listeners and you've tweeted them to us at at slate Gabfest, and uh it's great you send us so many good ones and this listener chatter comes from david friedlander home and it's a from a Cara Giamo article in the New York Times. Cara worked for me at Atlas Obscura. And in fact, this story in the Times is an outgrowth of a piece that she did once uh, for Atlas Obscura. So I'm so happy to see this show up as a listener chatter. My chatter is about a science experiment that's been running for 142 years and will hopefully make it past 200. In 1879 at Michigan State University, Dr. William James Beale buried 20 bottles of seeds The bottles are dug up every 20 years, and those seeds are planted to see what grows. But half of the fun is finding where the bottles are in the dark, because they don't want to let the sun shine on the seeds before it's their time. I also love how modern science is being applied to these seeds, buried in an entirely different era. For more on the caper and genetic analysis being done on the seeds, check out the New York Times article written by a former Atlas Obscura contributor. Great story. Good job, Kara. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, Britt Pooley, and Margaret Kelly produced this live show. Good job. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, and Jamel Bowie, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will be back with you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We've gotten some questions from you uh, through the chats. And so I'm going to take a question um, from Paul Kidd. Do you see any chance that D.C. becomes a state this term? 
David, I'll take it. I live in D.C. No, there is no chance that D.C. is going to become a state this term. The Democrats have passed statehood in the House. There is literally no chance that the Senate will consider it or or statehood for Puerto Rico um, because Republicans won't go for it. Manchin, I think, won't go for it. I don't think there's any, I don't, I mean, they're not going to get rid of the filibuster to make this happen, even though it's grossly unjust that people like me do not have representation in Congress uh, and that uh, the people of Puerto Rico who are American citizens do not have representation in Congress. But I just don't, there's no chance it, it happens. Anyone want to disagree? No. Bob, Chicago Bob McCollum asks, do you think ranked choice voting will lessen partisanship, Emily? I really like this idea because it suggests that we all have to think about more than one candidate and not just a kind of up or down vote. Um, I mean, obviously, it depends on having multiple candidates in the race in a more real way than we usually do for president, a more viable way. You know, the New York mayoral race is going to be a good test of this where you could see people's you could see the whole race scrambling because of ranked choice voting. Now, it's different. It's a primary. It doesn't have the same kind of partisan polarization. But I, I think this is a great experiment. I really hope that we all get used to it and that it becomes more common. And I actually think the main problem with it is I wish it had a catchier name. I can never remember myself what it's called, which strikes me as a bad sign. But I do think the way in which it forces you to think beyond your top choice would seem to reduce partisan polarization just in your well, own Let's brain. come up with a name for it. Let's do it quickly. Okay, so ranked choice is bad. What about um, GabFest fans? That was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.